0: Your time is priceless, so using Stamps.com should be a no-brainer. In this day and age, there's no reason to stand in line at the post office when you can ship packages from home. With Stamps.com, you can save a ton of time and save money with discounts on post office rates and UPS shipping rates. Online sellers and people operating large warehouses can all benefit from Stamps.com. Just print official US postage from your home or office printer for any letter or package and ship it wherever you want. It's that simple. Stop wasting time going to the post office and use stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code MURDERISH, you get a special offer that includes a four week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MURDERISH. That's stamps.com, promo code MURDERISH, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Before we get into this episode, I want to warn you that the case I'm covering involves the murder of a young child. Please use discretion. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed listener discretion is advised. On September 28, 1953, Bobby Greenlease, the six-year-old son of one of the Midwest's wealthiest automobile dealers, was abducted from his school and held for ransom. The news that followed would make national headlines for months, holding the attention of Americans far and wide. People cared about the fate of little Bobby, as if he was their own. This was a tale of evil, corruption, and stupidity, and Missouri's crime of the century, as the St. Louis Post-Dispatch would put it. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of Bobby Greenlee's. This takes us to Kansas City, Missouri and its surrounding suburbs. In the early 1950s, the mid-sized city experienced a post-war economic boom. This was the case with many cities across America. The industry that saw the most growth in the Midwest was agriculture. Kansas City led the nation in the hay and livestock markets, as well as seed distribution. While Casey's Union Station was once considered a major railway hub, closely rivaling Chicago, train travel rapidly began to decline due to the development of interstate highways and airline travel. Kansas City during the 1950s was renowned for its flourishing jazz music, inconspicuous speakeasies, and all-powerful crime families. Much like present day, Certain neighborhoods were reserved for the wealthy. To this day, mansions passed down through generations line a stretch of road called Ward Parkway. But not everyone could afford a home in the city, and some preferred the slower pace of suburban living. Back in 1912, controversial city planner J.C. Nichols had developed America's first garden community just across the state line in Mission Hills, Kansas. Located under 10 miles from KC's business district, it enticed residents with greenery, sculptures, fountains, and perfectly manicured lawns. In the 1940s, officials followed a national trend of metropolitan expansion to avoid issues like population density and rising real estate costs. Kansas City's surrounding suburbs were promoted as being a stone's throw from city amenities, but more picturesque and family-oriented. This is the town the Greenleys family would proudly call home. Robert C. Greenlees Sr. was born on August 25, 1882, on a farm in Saline County, Missouri. He was the only boy of six children. To say the Greenleys family came from humble beginnings, would be an understatement. According to the Baltimore Sun, when Robert was in sixth grade, he dropped out of school and got his first job at a countryside schoolhouse. For a nickel a day, he would sweep the floors. In the winters, he could earn an extra dime by building a fire in the school stove. In his teenage years, his parents Charles and Julia moved the family to Kansas City. Right away, Robert developed a passion for automobiles. He studied the inner workings of the very first car models and applied his newfound knowledge by opening an auto repair business in downtown KC. At 21, with the help of a business partner, he invented and manufactured a car known as the Kansas City Hummer. It was named for the sound it emitted when it was driven, a slight hum. There were four replicas of his prototype. When his design flopped in the early automobile market, he didn't let that dissuade him from his goals. While working for various motor car companies as a salesman, Robert heard whisperings of a hot new automobile model gaining popularity out east. The Cadillac was sleek, elegant, and reliable. It was quickly becoming a symbol of social status. The company was purchased by General Motors in 1909 and became one of the first automobiles compatible with mass production because its parts were interchangeable. When Robert was 25, he traveled to Detroit to apply for a Cadillac franchise. In 1918, he opened a dealership south of downtown Kansas City called Greenlee's Cadillac Motor Company. It was the first Cadillac dealership west of the Mississippi. Other luxury cars were also sold there, and Robert became a partner at other dealerships throughout the Midwest and beyond. Every car sold at Robert's own dealership was embossed with the phrase, buy Greenlease on the bumper, which was a matter of pride for both Robert and his customers. Robert's story was a classic rags-to-riches tale. Memories of the days spent sweeping the schoolhouse faded as his wealth grew exponentially. He soon found himself a multi-millionaire and one of Kansas City's wealthiest men. It was later stated in his obituary on findagrave.com, Greenlease was a true American pioneer and a titan in the growth and expansion of the Cadillac automobile nationwide for over 60 years. In 1939, Robert divorced his first wife, Betty Rush. Shortly after, he met the woman who would become his second and final wife, Virginia Pollock. Despite a substantial age difference, the 31-year-old was impressed by Robert's drive to succeed. They had two children together, Virginia Sue and Bobby Jr. Robert was 65 years old when his youngest child, Bobby, was born in February of 1947. By all accounts, he was a doting and generous father, who exemplified that hard work paid off. Virginia preferred to stay out of the spotlight and avoided the press as word of the Greenlease's wealth quickly spread. By the early 1950s, two nefarious individuals desperate for easy money were paying close attention to the Greenlease family. During Robert's first marriage, he and his former wife had a son named Paul. After high school, Paul attended Kemper Military School in Boonville, Missouri. It was there that he met an acquaintance by the name of Carl Austin Hall. It was a brief connection that would end up greatly impacting the Greenleys' family years later. Why should we have to decide whether our outfit for the day will be comfortable or professional? How about we achieve both? With Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants, you can feel comfortable and look professional. Beta Brand designs their clothing with comfort and confidence in mind. They're highly popular dress pant yoga pants with a stretch knit fabric that resists wrinkles, which makes them the perfect choice for any occasion. I went to an event recently where the dress code was mostly professional, but I was able to get away with wearing jeans, and here's why. Beta Brand has a new yoga denim line that is made of fabric with the perfect amount of stretch so you can move and breathe in them. I wore my new black colored Beta Brand yoga denim to the professional attire event and paired them with a cute blouse and I fit right in. Stop buying dress pants and denim that you have to tug on all day to get them from digging into your sides. Try Beta Brand instead. There are a bunch of colors and styles to choose from. Right now, my listeners can get 30% off your first Beta Brand order when you go to betabrand.com/murderish. That's 30% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com/murderish. Find out why women are ditching typical work pants for Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. Go to betabrand.com/murderish for 30% off. I admit it, I'm addicted to certain reality TV shows. They are my guilty pleasure. But I have to say, I feel zero guilt playing Best Fiends, a casual mobile puzzle game that I cannot put down. Playing Best Fiends activates my brain and keeps it working while I enjoy a little friendly competition among friends who also play the game. I've been playing Best Fiends for almost a year now and I still get the same adrenaline rush when I get to a new level. During commercial breaks, I play Best Fiends, standing in line at the grocery store, I play the game, and sometimes I just stop what I'm doing and play because, well, it's fun. There are a ton of levels to play with new levels being added often. The characters you collect are adorable, and solving puzzles is so satisfying. With Best Fiends, the fun just keeps on going And I'm sorry in advance, but not sorry. If you find yourself completely obsessed with this game, I triple-dog dare you to try it and only play one level because it's impossible. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Carl Austin Hall was born on July 1, 1919. He was a Kansas City native with a troubled past. His grandfather, Austin Hall, was a successful lawyer in Trading Post, Kansas, one of the oldest continuously occupied settlements in the state. His son, John, followed in his father's footsteps. He became an attorney and community leader in Pleasanton, Kansas. While working, John met and married a judge's daughter named Zella Cannon. Tragically, their first son sustained a brain injury during birth, and he was mentally incapacitated as a result. The Halls placed their son in a mental institution when he was three years old. Two years later, he passed away. Five years later, Carl was born. As the only child of a rich lawyer, Carl was spoiled every chance his father had but in 1932, a month before Carl's 13th birthday, tragedy struck. Carl's father died suddenly from a brain tumor. To lose his male role model at such a formative age undoubtedly took its toll on Carl's attitude and behavior. Carl's mother, Zella, was ill-equipped to be a single mother, let alone manage an unruly teenage son. According to author John Heidenre, who wrote the book Zero at the Bone. Carl was sent to stay with Pansy McDowell, described as a childless elderly widow who lived on a 1,500-acre ranch and had a reputation for helping raise children who lost one or both parents. One night, Pansy heard Carl sobbing in bed. He told her he missed his father, mother, and grandmother. As quoted in Heidenbury's book, the older caretaker would later call Zella Hall the most cold-blooded and hardest-hearted mother I have ever known. In fact, by all appearances, Zella didn't want to be a mother at all. With her husband deceased and her son away, she kept herself busy with high society, attending women's clubs and remaining active in the local Presbyterian church. Once Carl was too old to be looked after by Pansy, Zella actually paid a local telephone company to hire Carl at her own expense. She wanted to keep him busy and out of her way. Instead of having her son attend a traditional high school, Zella shipped Carl away to Kemper Military Academy, where he was a classmate of Paul Robert Greenlee's. The Kemper Academy was boasted as being the West Point of the West. Carl was rebellious during the three years he spent there. He enjoyed his newfound independence by going with friends to Fort Scott or other nearby bases, picking up girls and getting drunk. When his mother caught wind of this, she pulled Carl out of the academy and placed him into Pleasanton High School for his senior year. The joke was on her. Carl was well-liked by his peers, even if his own mother didn't have a fondness for him. In 1936, Carl was elected vice president of the senior class. In the fall of 1937, Carl enrolled at William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. He dropped out after only three months. Growing increasingly frustrated with her son, Zella arranged for Carl to enlist in the U.S. Marine Corps. Carl served for four years under the assignment of a telephone equipment lineman before being honorably discharged. Even though he had a strong distaste for barracks life and was eager to return to civilian status, he reenlisted and served another four years. It's possible that Zella's will contained a stipulation that Carl would inherit her estate only if he reenlisted. It was during this second tenure that Carl began drinking heavily on a regular basis. He was absent without leave on several occasions because of his drinking habit. This led him to be court martialed and sentenced to time in the U.S. military stockade in Quantico, Virginia. During his incarceration, Carl's mother redrew her will to disinherit Carl and make his grandmother principal beneficiary. It was clear to Carl there was no pleasing his mother, so he resigned himself to drinking heavily, consuming a fifth of whiskey daily. Upon reaching the age of 18, Carl received a $200,000 inheritance from his deceased father, which he used to operate a few liquor stores and play the stock market. Then, in 1944, his mother passed away. His grandmother died just two years later. Despite his mother's disdain, Carl inherited her estate as well. In 1946, Carl eloped with a Pleasanton woman named Irene Holmes. She was recently divorced and lived in a spacious home on Ward Parkway. But the relationship gradually deteriorated, largely due to Carl's string of dead-end business ventures that contributed to major financial losses. In 1951, Carl was caught by KCPD being involved in a plot to burglarize the Plaza Bank of Commerce. He was arrested before he could commit the robbery. According to the Newport News Daily Press, he hadn't realized the bank was closed on Saturdays. Officers caught Carl carrying a pistol and arrested him. For this crime and another attempted robbery, he served a little over a year in the Missouri State Penitentiary. He was released in April of 1952 on good behavior. In October of that year, Carl was charged with armed robbery at a liquor store. Although these charges were dropped, a few weeks later he was arrested again. This time, it was under suspicion of holding up eight different taxi drivers at gunpoint. He only managed to collect $33, but that was beside the point. He pleaded guilty to two counts and was sentenced to five years in Missouri State Penitentiary. During a sentencing hearing, as reported in the Newport News Daily Press, his attorney said of Carl, He needs a psychiatrist, not imprisonment. Carl served only a year and three months of that sentence, qualifying for parole in April of 1953. He moved to St. Joseph, Missouri, where a local attorney who had helped secure Carl's early release came to his aid. He got him a job as an automobile salesman and then an insurance salesman. In both positions, he was fired for excessive absences and drinking on the job. St. Joseph, referred to by locals as St. Joe, was the town where 41-year-old Bonnie Brown Hetty lived. She was born on July 15, 1912, in the small town of Burlington Junction, Missouri. Much like Carl Hall, Bonnie experienced loss early in life. Her mother, Mabel Clutter Brown, passed away when Bonnie was just two years old. French P. Brown, Bonnie's father, was a prosperous farmer who had no interest in being a father figure. Since Bonnie was the widower's only child, her father sent her away to live with her late mother's siblings, Aunt Nellie and Uncle Ed. Bonnie had an average childhood. She attended the Hazeldale School in Claremont, Missouri, along the Iowa border, where she was considered an above-average student. She went on to attend Northwest Missouri State College, but dropped out after only a few months. There was a pattern of her re-enrolling a handful of times, only to drop out mid-semester. At one point, she took a hairdresser course and worked a stint in a local beauty salon. In June of 1932, when she was 20, Bonnie married Vernon Ellis Hetty. Outwardly, their relationship was loving. Vernon, a successful livestock merchant, often brought Bonnie to square dances and together, they showed and bred pedigree boxers. Their six-room bungalow in St. Joe must have been a lively scene with so many dogs. Secretly, the marriage was full of suffering, especially for Bonnie. She wanted children early in the marriage, but Vernon was vehemently against having them. According to the book Zero at the Bone, Vernon forced his wife to have 11 illegal abortions. Perhaps because she was denied motherhood, a friend would say about Bonnie's opinion of children that she later began to dislike them intensely. When Bonnie's father French died in 1948, he left his estranged daughter $44,000 along with a 316-acre farm 16 miles north of Maryville, Missouri. No mention is made of the fate of the farm, though it is likely Bonnie sold it. Around the time her father died, Bonnie began drinking. She had had enough of her unhappy marriage. Vernon was barely home and dodged any questions about his whereabouts. In 1952, she filed for divorce on grounds of adultery. She got to keep the modest house in St. Joe. But her newfound freedom brought her nothing but trouble. Bonnie was arrested multiple times for drunk and disorderly conduct and prostitution. In late May of 1953, Bonnie met Carl Hall for the first time. They were both drinking at the Pony Express Bar inside Hotel Rubidoux, located in St. Joe. It was an encounter that would change the course of their lives forever. After chatting over drinks, Bonnie and Carl spent the night together. Evidently, a relationship developed. Two days later, Carl moved into Bonnie's house. And for a while, the couple shared a self-proclaimed life of leisure. They spent their days drinking and hatching a plan to make large sums of money. This was mostly out of necessity. Both of them had drained their inheritances substantially but still dreamed of a luxurious lifestyle. Carl had a very clear idea of how to procure hard cash. As mentioned in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Bonnie would later recall, he informed me that this was one method of obtaining an exceptionally large amount of money quickly with a minimum chance of detection. The couple's plan manifested on September 28, 1953. They drove into Kansas City from St. Joe Around 7:30 that morning. Even though it was early in the morning when they completed the hour-long drive, they stopped for a few drinks at Lynn's Tavern, a dive bar just on the outskirts of the city. Before continuing on, Carl gave Bonnie two breath mints to mask any odor of liquor. He parked the car in a parking lot of Kat's Drugstore on 40th and Main. After weeks of following Robert Greenlease, they took note of his routine. Robert dropped off his son Bobby at his private school every weekday morning around 8:50 a.m. At roughly 10:45 a.m., Bonnie hopped into a taxi and directed the driver to drop her off at the French Institute Bobby attended. She told the nun who greeted her that she was Bobby's aunt and that there was a family emergency. She claimed that while out shopping with Bobby's mother in Kansas City's outdoor mall district, Known as the plaza, missus Greenlease had suffered a heart attack. Bonnie said that under missus Greenlease's instruction she had come to the school to fetch Bobby and bring him home. Mr Greenlease was not present, she said, because he was summoned to Saint Mary's Hospital where his wife was being treated. Sister Moran responded by bringing Bonnie over to the first floor chapel to say a prayer for missus Greenlease while another nun fetched Bobby. If the six-year-old boy was at all scared of the strange woman, he didn't show it. Bobby took Bonnie's hand and followed her into a taxi. On the ride back to where Carl was parked, he told the woman the name of his family dogs, chatted about his parrot, and mentioned that the family had two Cadillacs. Bonnie told him she was taking him to see his daddy and promised to get him some ice cream. The precious boy had no reason to believe anything was wrong. Once they got back to the car, Bobby entered Bonnie's Plymouth station wagon without any hesitation. The three of them sat together on the front bench seat with Bobby in the middle and took off on the highway. The head nun, Sister Marthana, had called the Greenlease residence about an hour after Bobby left school to inquire about Mrs. Greenlease's health. The ruse was up when Mrs. Greenlease picked up the phone and informed the nun there was no dire family emergency. Bobby was reported missing around 3 p.m. that day. Mr. Greenlease only found out that his son was missing when his wife called to tell him that someone had taken the boy from school he immediately spoke with Kansas City's chief of police, who involved the FBI. The Greenleases were grief-stricken and panicked. How could their young son have been taken out of school so easily by what was described as a red-haired stranger? A few hours passed after the kidnapping. Then, the first letter came. The Kansas City Times published the ransom note, which was printed in pencil and read. Your boy has been kidnapped. Get $600,000 in 20s and 10s fed reserve notes from all 12 districts. We realize it takes a few days to get that amount. Boy will be in good hands. When you have money ready, put ad in KC Star. M. We'll meet you in Chicago next Sunday. Mr. G. Do not call police or try to use chemicals on bills or take numbers. Do not use any radio to catch or trap us or boy dies. If you try to trap us, your wife, your other child, and yourself will be killed. You will be watched all of the time. You will be told later how to contact us with money. When you get this note, let us know by driving up and down Main Street between 39 and 29 for 20 minutes with white rag on car aerial. If you do exactly as we say and try no tricks, your boy will be back safe within 24 hours after we check money. Deliver money in army duffel bag. Be ready to deliver at once on contact. The letter was signed with a single letter, M. With detectives having very little to go on, in a time prior to the development of DNA techniques, Robert Greenlees complied. He and a friend drove up and down Main Street with a white t-shirt tied to his Cadillac's antenna, confirming the ransom letter was received. A second letter arrived on September 30th. It was postmarked the previous night and reaffirmed the demand for $600,000, while also stating Bobby was all right but homesick. Inside the envelope, along with the letter, was a Jerusalem cross Bobby had been wearing around his neck the day he disappeared. This personal item was meant to convey the criminals were not bluffing about having Bobby. According to the FBI's official website, the Greenleases received over a half a dozen ransom notes and 15 telephone calls over the course of a week. Robert desperately wanted his son back, so he gathered the ransom money. According to the Kansas City Star, a bank executive at Commerce Trust Company, told Robert it would take several days to gather such an exorbitant sum. As an interesting aside, the bank executive happened to be Arthur Eisenhower, the brother of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Once the money was obtained, Robert placed an ad in the Kansas City Star's Personals column. As one of the ransom letters requested, this was done to announce that he was ready to drop off the money. It read, "M." We'll meet you in Chicago Sunday, G. From September 30th to October 4th, there were a handful of failed attempts to deliver the ransom money. Carl's instructions about a meeting point were confusing, which added to the Greenlease's frustration, not knowing if young Bobby was okay. On October 4th, a third attempt to deliver the money was successful. Two friends of the Greenlease family dropped off a duffel bag by a wooden bridge where Lee's Summit Road crossed the Little Blue River. The ransom paid to Bobby's kidnappers is equal to $5.7 million today. It was the highest ransom paid in history at that time, three times larger than any ransom paid in an abduction, according to the Baltimore Sun. A call came in at 1 a.m. the day after the drop-off, The kidnappers acknowledged the money was received and promised they would return the boy in 24 hours. According to the Kansas City Star, the kidnapper said instructions for picking up Bobby would be sent to the Western Union Telegraph Office in Pittsburgh, Kansas. The town was 100 miles south of Kansas City. A few hours later, two of Robert's associates waited at the telegraph office. No message came through. After two days of waiting, the men gave up and returned to Kansas City. The Greenleases never heard from the kidnappers again. There was a lot going on behind the scenes, which was hidden from the Greenlease family. The biggest deception was that Bobby would be safely returned home if the Greenleases forked over the ransom. In actuality, Bobby had been killed within an hour of being kidnapped. Once Bonnie and Carl had the boy in their car, they took the highway and pulled off into a wheat field five miles from the Kansas-Missouri border. According to the book, Zero at the Bone, Carl followed the ruts made by a tractor to an isolated spot concealed by crops and hay bales. Then, he got out of the car and smoothed down a blue sheet in the trunk. Bonnie had one of her boxer puppies with her. As soon as the car door opened, the puppy hopped out of the car and went running. Bonnie frantically chased after the dog. In the distance, she heard two rounds of gunfire. That's when she knew Bobby was dead. His body was buried in a shallow grave in Bonnie's backyard. All the while, they made his parents believe he was alive and well that if only they surrendered a large sum of money, the six-year-old would be returned home to them, and they could go back to being a loving family. It was all a terrible lie. This has been such a tough year for a lot of people. Because of that, I want to make this Mother's Day extra special for my mom. I'm gifting her with StoryWorth this year and she's going to love it. StoryWorth is an online service that allows mother figures to tell their stories through questions they're asked through the StoryWorth service. Here's how it works. Each week, your mother figure will receive an email from StoryWorth that will contain thought-provoking questions like what is some of the best advice your mother ever gave you. After one year, StoryWorth will gather all of the stories your mother figure has provided along with photos and package them up into a really nice book she can keep forever. My mom has documented her entire life by taking photos of every moment, so StoryWorth is going to be something she absolutely loves. Plus, it's a really unique way for us to bond and for me to get to know more about her. I also think that StoryWorth is going to make my mom feel seen because she'll be prompted to answer questions all about her. Give your mom the most meaningful gift this Mother's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash murderish. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com murderish for $10 off. Tea lovers, let me tell you about my go-to tea brand, Plum Deluxe, a family-owned company, makes and ships all of their delicious teas from Portland, Oregon. Their tea recipes are unique, and the high-quality ingredients they use really come through in the delicious taste and aroma of their teas. If you really love Plum Deluxe Teas, and you will, trust me, you can sign up for a subscription that allows you to choose teas based on specific preferences like caffeine-free, and based on any allergies you might have to certain ingredients. Oftentimes, I find that popular teas have a lot of sugar in them, as well as dairy, soy, and gluten. With Plum Deluxe, there's no reason for them to have this stuff in their teas because the great taste of their high-quality ingredients stand on their own. Visit PlumDeluxe.com Murderish to shop their amazing selection of premium teas blended to perfection. Enter VIP code MURDERISH at checkout for 10% off your purchase. Or, if you like getting surprises in the mail, join the tea club and get a 20% off code on additional teas and accessories. After collecting the ransom money, the couple headed for St. Louis. Carl had rented a car for the ransom pickup and forgot to switch out the license plates with ones he had stolen. Paranoid that the men who dropped off the money had seen the plates, he used a portion of the ransom money to buy a car. Bonnie argued with Carl over this purchase. She also wanted to stay in a first-class hotel to celebrate the success of their diabolical scheme. But Carl wanted to rent a modest apartment in a residential area of St. Louis where they wouldn't attract attention. Apparently, Carl won that dispute. Before they fled to St. Joe, Carl transferred the ransom money from the duffel bag into two metal suitcases. At 6 a.m. on October 5th, they rented a flat on Arsenal Street in St. Louis under the name Grant. Throughout the day, the pair drank heavily and argued. Bonnie awoke in the afternoon to find Carl had left. There was a note on the dresser in Carl's handwriting saying that he left but he would be back. Bonnie continued drinking, alone and in a daze. She woke up around noon the following day. Carl still wasn't there, and Bonnie soon realized the suitcases had been taken from the closet. While Bonnie had slept off her drinking binge the day before, Carl had hailed a cab. Keeping the driver on retainer, he made his rounds to different taverns in the city. Later that night, he asked to be taken to Coral Court, an old roadside motel in nearby Marlborough, where he hired a call girl. The next day, he took a cab to the Congress Hotel in downtown St. Louis. It was an upscale hotel where celebrities were often spotted. The bar inside attracted an upscale clientele. Carl's careless spending and the fact that he didn't look like he belonged drew some attention. Someone called in a tip to the St. Louis Police Department, about his spending spree. Around the same time, the cab driver tipped off his boss about Carl's piles of cash. The cab company was owned by local crime boss Joe Costello. Costello had ties to a dirty cop, Lt. Lewis Shoulders. Shoulders was a 27-year veteran of the St. Louis Police Force. By that point, the Greenlees case had made national news, and Lieutenant Shoulders decided to investigate to see if there was a connection between the kidnapping ransom and Carl Hall. On October 6, 1953, he and patrolman Elmer Dolan arrested Carl and brought him down to the Newstead Station in North St. Louis. According to the Kansas City Star, an hour later, officers returned to the station with the money-filled suitcases. They claimed it was all the money Carl had on him, though it was later discovered the suitcases contained only part of the ransom. It didn't take long for Carl to implicate Bonnie. All the arguing had gotten her on his bad side, but he also implicated another person, Thomas Marsh. Carl and Bonnie eventually confessed to the kidnapping and were held in the Jackson County Jail on extortion charges. Carl maintained he and his cohort only kidnapped Bobby. It was Thomas Marsh who had killed him. Marsh was an easy scapegoat. He had served two years in the Missouri State Penitentiary for child molestation. Though he had received a longer sentence, it was commuted by the governor for unknown reasons in October of 1951. Since his release, he had a laundry list of criminal charges, including drunkenness, loitering, disturbing the peace and vagrancy. So it wasn't a stretch of the imagination that Marsh could be capable of harming another child. In a press release published by the Shreveport Times, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was quoted as saying, "The confession of Carl Austin Hall consists of his admissions of planning and arranging the kidnapping of Bobby Greenlees, delivering of the boy to Thomas John Marsh, the giving of a revolver to Marsh, the burial of the body and the collection of the $600,000 ransom, along with the negotiations with the parents for the boy's safe return after 24 hours. Hall denies, however, that he personally killed the boy. Marsh was on the run once he fell under suspicion. Photos of the 37-year-old paroled convict were in all of the newspapers for his alleged involvement So, the public was on high alert. Tips of his whereabouts were received sporadically by the FBI. The Spokane Chronicle cited two instances where Marsh may have been spotted. A filling station attendant in Cedar Rapids notified police about an extremely nervous motorist who stopped for gas at around 3 a.m. on October 7th. He had driven off without waiting for his change. The attendant told detectives. That the man said he was going to Minneapolis, drove a black Chevy sedan, and had no plates on his vehicle. This attendant also happened to notice Missouri plates lying on the floor of the car. Investigators also received a tip from the wife of a tavern owner outside Des Moines, Iowa. She said a man matching Marsh's description came in three times in a single afternoon, asking for a newspaper each time. According to her, the man said, I used to drive trucks for Greenlees. But discrepancies in Bonnie and Carl's stories made detectives doubt that Marsh had been an accomplice. Initially, Carl claimed that Bonnie had no idea that she was taking part in a kidnapping. According to the St. Joseph News Press, he said he told her the boy was his child by a former marriage and that he only wanted to visit with him for a few hours. Bonnie also emphasized she had never even met Thomas John Marsh. Carl maintained this story as long as he could. He said that he handed Bobby off to Marsh to take him to St. Joe within an hour of the kidnapping, and that he had killed Bobby and buried him in Bonnie's backyard. When investigators dug around in her yard, they found Bobby buried in a shallow grave beneath a patch of chrysanthemums. He was wrapped in a blue plastic sheet with lime thrown on top, which made the body decompose faster. The Greenlees' family dentist, Dr. Hubert Eversole, used dental records to confirm the identity of the body. It was, in fact, young Bobby. Having located the victim, detectives took a closer look at Bonnie's bungalow. While searching the house, Investigators saw blood stains on the floor of the basement and on the steps leading to the door. Blood was also found on a nylon blouse and fiber rug inside the home. Two .38 caliber shell casings were also retrieved, one inside the house and another under a floor mat in Bonnie's station wagon. After further analysis, it was confirmed that these shell casings matched the Wesson revolver In Carl Hall's possession when he was arrested, the evidence did not line up with Carl's account that a third individual was involved. Marsh was never tracked down by the FBI because it became unnecessary. On october twelfth, after sending Kansas City detectives and FBI agents on a wild goose chase, Hall and Hetty confessed to murdering Bobby. The manhunt for Marsh was called off. Along with the confessions, The duplicitous pair directed authorities to the crime scene. Two pieces of evidence were obtained there. A small brown velvet hat belonging to Bonnie was left behind when the gunfire startled her dog. A mechanical pencil was also found at the scene. It was engraved with the words, "Greenlease O'Neill Oldsmobile. The pencil had been given to Bobby from his father. And just like that, the kidnapping murder case full of twists and turns was solved. More details would come to light during the trial. Right off the bat, because the couple crossed Missouri and Kansas state line with the kidnapped child, the Lindbergh Law applied to the case. According to Time magazine, the Lindbergh Law, which was enacted in 1932, declared kidnapping across state lines a federal felony. It is named after the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh, whose 20 month old son was kidnapped from his home. Also referred to as the Federal Kidnapping Act, the law was created because federal agencies are more effective in tracking down kidnappers across state lines than local authorities. It was devastating news to hear, despite meeting the kidnappers' demands, that Bobby had been killed. A family friend, Robert Letterman, Served as a spokesman for the Greenlee's family during the media storm that surrounded the case. In speaking about the news Bobby had been killed, he told the Associated Press, We relied on a criminal's word. We had to, but we lost. The charges of kidnapping and murder both held a maximum penalty of death in Missouri. And most juries of past and present time don't take crimes against young children lightly. The greatly anticipated trial began on October 30, 1953, at the U.S. District Court of Missouri. The press recorded every reaction from Hall and Hetty. Newspapers around the country regularly devoted a two-page spread to every moment of the trial. Local newspapers like the Kansas City Times and the Kansas City Star published updates in both morning and evening editions of their daily papers. There were 12 jurors, all consisting of middle-aged white men. The case was so highly publicized, it was a unique challenge to ensure jurors would remain unbiased. According to the Kansas City Times, between sessions in court, the jurors were isolated at the Pickwick Hotel. They were instructed by Judge Albert L. Reeves not to listen to the radio, watch television, or discuss the case in any way. Any newspapers they wanted to read had references to the case clipped out. As cited in the Kansas City Times, Edward Schufler, U.S. Attorney for Western Missouri, opened the trial by calling the crime one of the outstanding kidnappings in the Annals of America, in the entire world. Bonnie reportedly smiled at this statement. Schufler went on to say their guilt was not in question, but instead, the government is here seeking a recommendation from you, a verdict of death, because the nature of the crime, because of the culpability, the special acts and operations indicated in the evidence that these two accomplices. The evidence will clearly indicate that these two accomplices, partners in this tragic crime, worked hand in hand, that they were in this together. Harold Hull represented Bonnie Brown Hetty. In his brief opening statement, he declared Bonnie didn't want to testify on her behalf. As captured by the Kansas City Times, he wished only to present one piece of evidence, intended to show Bonnie Brown Hetty was not always an evil woman. The only witness for Bonnie's defense was her aunt, Mrs. Nellie Baker who had raised Bonnie after her mother's death. Her developmental years, Hull argued, could be construed as mitigating circumstances. Carl Hall's court-appointed attorney, Roy K. Dietrich, focused on the notion that his client's life was set up for failure. He was quoted in the Times as saying, he was used to wild and riotous living. He did not know how to work. He tasted the joys of money without knowing what it was to toil for it. He did not have the love from his parents that a child should have. He hadn't any love of his parents to teach him to love others. He also argued Carl's love of alcohol had deadened his sensibilities. But any attempts to cast the criminals in a better light were fruitless. National headlines seemed to dwell on Bonnie's demeanor. They read, Bonnie Hetty displays virtually no remorse as guilt is put into record, appears to be indifferent, her face a mask, and no interest in her fate is shown by kidnapper Bobby Greenlease. It's possible Bonnie was the media's focus because it was the 1950s and no one could fathom a woman harming a child. It seemed unnatural. In the span of 45 minutes, U.S. Attorney Edward Schufler read Bonnie's 26-page-long confession to the court. The Kansas City Times relayed every step of the crime. They had originally intended to abduct Bobby's 11-year-old sister, Virginia Sue. At one point in the middle of September, Bonnie and Carl had followed Mrs. Greenlees to pick Virginia up at school. On the way home, they stopped at the Plaza District. Virginia was left in the Greenleases' Cadillac while her mother went into the drugstore. Carl debated whether he could kidnap the girl without causing a scene, but out of nowhere, she got out of the car and joined her mother. Virginia was never informed of this incident for fear of frightening her. The couple had been planning the kidnapping since June of that year. It was entirely premeditated. Failing to capture Virginia, They shifted their attention to Bobby. The day before the abduction, Bonnie wrote, We had decided it would be necessary to murder the boy. It took Carl almost a day to dig the grave. My mind was clear and I knew my instructions very well. Once they had reached the field, the original plan for Carl was to strangle the boy with a small piece of clothesline he had in the car. But the rope proved too short and Bobby was kicking and screaming. Exasperated, Carl pinned Bobby to the floor and shot him. When Bonnie returned from fetching her dog, Carl was wrapping Bobby's body in a blue plastic on the ground behind the car. Bonnie said she helped lift the body, noticing Carl had blood all over his face, coat, hands, and arms. Using tissue, Bonnie blotted the blood as best she could so it wouldn't be noticed as they drove back through Kansas City. On the drive back to Bonnie's house in St. Joseph, they stopped at a tavern for drinks. Upon arriving at the bungalow, they drove into the basement garage. Then Carl carried the body up through the house and out to the grave that had been dug in advance. As per Carl's instructions, Bonnie watered the dirt frequently with a hose, using an axe to break apart the sod and then a shovel to conceal the body. She bought a dozen blooming chrysanthemums from a local greenhouse and planted them on the grave to disguise the disrupted earth. In her confession, Bonnie also admitted she was intoxicated most of the time between the murder and her arrest. As quoted in the Kansas City Times, one reason for my staying in this inebriated condition was the realization of the horrible crime which had been perpetrated, and I wanted to stay drunk so that my conscience would not bother me. Even without her extensive confession, Bonnie and Carl were confirmed guilty by witnesses for the prosecution again and again. There were minor witnesses like Frank Malding, a radio repairman who had installed a shortwave converter in the radio of Bonnie's car so she could intercept KCPD calls. Harold Cable, who testified that he sold Hall the revolver, used to kill Bobby. William Creech, the cab driver who drove Hetty to the school where she abducted Bobby. And then there was Bobby's father, Robert Greenlees. While he struggled to maintain composure, he identified items belonging to his son. The ransom notes, the ad he had placed in the KC Star, and the mechanical pencil. It was heart-wrenching to watch. Dr. H.F. Mundy, Chief medical examiner assigned to the case took the stand and described the severity of Bobby's injuries. According to the book Zero to the Bone, the medical examiner confirmed that the child had been struck in the face with the butt of Hall's gun, which knocked out his three front teeth. Investigators determined the first shot fired missed Bobby, ricocheting off the floor into a panel on the left door. Monday's autopsy established the second shot entered Bobby's head about an inch and a half behind his right ear and exited two inches above his left ear. He was killed instantly. During the pandemic, I went on a TV binge fest and ran out of shows to watch. Then, with my Acorn TV account, I found myself with so many new shows to binge. Acorn TV is a British streaming service that has a brilliant library of exclusive premieres and originals you can't find anywhere else, and it's all commercial-free. There are award-winning mysteries, dramas, comedies, and so much more ready for you to binge right now. On Acorn TV, you'll find Keeping Faith, a BBC thriller featuring actress Eve Miles, who plays an attorney who's in a happy marriage. Then, her husband suddenly disappears, and she becomes the prime suspect. She's on a mission to find out the truth, but in the process, the criminal underbelly of her quiet town is exposed. A new season of Keeping Faith is streaming now. I love how easily I can stream Acorn TV on my phone, which came in handy when we went camping recently. If you're ready for a streaming service that offers new stories, new characters, and breathtaking sceneries every week, do what I did and get ACORN TV. Try ACORN TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use my promo code MURDERISH. That's A-C-O-R-N dot TV code MURDERISH to get your first 30 days free. You guys, I've been telling you about Stamps.com and who doesn't love a good time-saving and money-saving hat? Stamps.com offers both because it allows you to ship packages from home and get discounted post office and UPS shipping rates. Business owners, you can save so much money on payroll and mileage expenses sending your employees to the post office to ship packages. Switch to Stamps.com instead. With your Stamps.com account, you can ship packages via USPS or UPS at discounted rates to any destination you want. It's cheaper than using a postage meter. It's no surprise that almost a million small businesses are already shipping with Stamps.com. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There is no risk. And with my promo code MURDERISH, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in MURDERISH. That's stamps.com, promo code MURDERISH, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. The sensational trial ended on November 19th. After an hour of deliberations, the jury recommended the death penalty for the two child murderers. As cited on the FBI's official site, when reflecting on the outcome of the trial, Judge Reeves said, I think the verdict fits the evidence. It's the most cold-blooded, brutal murder I have ever tried. And that was saying a lot, as the judge was in his 80s at the time. On December 18, 1953, 81 days after the kidnapping and murder, Bonnie Brown Hetty and Carl Hall were scheduled to be executed. Anticipating a large crowd of curious spectators, traffic patrolmen roped off the streets surrounding the Missouri State Penitentiary the murderous pair were executed together in the gas chamber. As for the discrepancy in the ransom money brought into the station, it was discovered that the arresting officers had kept some for themselves. Both Lieutenant Lewis Shoulders and Patrolman Elmer Dolan were federally indicted for perjury in 1954. Shoulders served three years in the penitentiary, passing away in May of 1962 just a few years following his release. Dolan served two years in prison. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson inexplicably pardoned him. According to the Kansas City Star, some who have studied the case believe a St. Louis mobster laundered the stolen ransom money through associates in Chicago. We will likely never know where the money went, just that it was originally intended to buy back a life that was already taken. The Greenleys family never got over Bobby's death. As mentioned on the Greenleys family's official website, the tragic loss of his little Bobby left such a profound shadow on Robert. His well known generosity did not dissipate after grieving. He helped his surviving son, Paul, open up his own Cadillac dealership in Kansas City. Virginia Sue leaned on her father for support but the death of her brother cast a gloom over her life. She passed away in 1984 when she was only 43. Mr. and Mrs. Greenlease lived as a loving team and became philanthropic contributors in the Roman Catholic community. Robert devoted his efforts to the education of boys. According to the family's website, he financed the education of several young men and contributed quite substantially To Rockhurst University and Rockhurst High School for the remainder of his life. Robert Greenlease passed away in September of 1969 at the age of 87. Mrs. Greenlease died in 2001. The entire Greenlease family was laid to rest in Forest Hill Abbey Mausoleum in Kansas City. The decades old case remains on the minds of Missouri and Kansas historians. The Greenlease family legacy lives on in the bricks of Rockhurst University, in the midtown Kansas City apartments named Greenlease Cadillac Lofts, and with the help of surviving relatives who maintained the official Greenlease website. Though they were never reunited with Bobby in life, one can only hope the victimized family are all together again in death. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to my new podcast, Judgy and Juryish. Also, I'm going to be at CrimeCon in Austin, Texas this year, and I'd love to see you there. Use promo code MURDERISH20 to get 10% off of a standard badge. Go to CrimeCon.com to get info about the event. It's so much fun. Use promo code MURDERISH20 for 10% off. Stick around after the closing music to hear promos for The Path Went Chilly and Criminal Conduct Season 2. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe if you like what you hear. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish merch like t-shirts, face masks, and more. If you can't get enough Murderish, subscribe to our Patreon service to get immediate access to bonus content only available to Patreon subscribers. There's a link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber at murderish.com. Thank you to Porter K, Emily S, Stephanie R, and Gabrielle D for becoming Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you guys so much. If you haven't joined the Murderish Facebook discussion group, do it. We have so much fun in there. You can also find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod and on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, tell a friend about Murderish or write a review in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Alison Schwartz. Stick around after the closing music and podcast promos to hear a list of sources used for this episode. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember... Listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
1: Hi, I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold. If you are unfamiliar with my other podcast, I often cover stories from the television show, Unsolved Mysteries. For the past five years, you've heard me talk about these cases on my own, but now's your chance to hear me have in-depth discussions about them with other people. I want to welcome you to my new project, The Path Went Chilly, where I will be discussing in-depth with my two good friends and co-hosts cases that I've covered on The Trail Went Cold. Meet my co hosts First one up is Jules.
0: Hi, I'm Jules from the podcast Riddle Me That True Crime and I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling. I'm not a psychologist or a diagnostician, so don't get too excited, but I can't wait to analyze these cases with these two amazing humans. You've already met Robin, now meet Dr. Ashley Wellman.
1: Hi, I'm Ashley. I have a PhD in criminology, law, and society, and I specialize in trauma victims and survivors. I've spent a great deal of time working with families left behind after homicides with a cold case unit based out of Florida. And I'm also a professor of criminology. I'm so excited to be chatting with two of my best friends about the cases that everyone can't seem to get enough of. We hope in doing so that we will have a clearer perspective
0: of what may have transpired. Oftentimes, Ashley will be totally in the dark.
1: Jules and I will be telling Ashley a story she may not know much about, so all of her reactions are genuine. We will be releasing on all major platforms April 8th. We hope you will join us as we attempt to heat up some ice cold cases. The Path Went Chili will be available every Thursday on all major podcast platforms. Criminal Contact is back with a brand new season. John, what is a constable? Like a police officer, they can carry a gun, a badge, and drive around town with blue lights. But a constable is much more powerful than a regular police officer. In Kentucky, a constable has all the powers of a sheriff. He answers to no one but the voters on election day. And there's one constable in Kentucky that got our attention. Mike Wallace, the constable, was a walking civil rights violation. He's got a gun and a badge and is able to intimidate a lot of people. He'll pull people over. Hey, what's that in your car? So you have this rogue law enforcement officer with unchecked power, making all these arrests. I mean, I get calls from people that are physically scared. If he got behind me and turned his blue lights on, I ain't stopping. We found out that basically Constable Wallace is just listening in on the right bandwidth and showing up to these calls before the police can. First guy there, gets first whack at at making the arrest and making any money off of things. But how does a constable make money in Kentucky? Constables can keep up to 85% of the cash that they seize and a percentage of the proceeds from the property they take. But other constables have found other ways of making money. The one constable that we're talking about this season has been accused of shaking people down and stealing their cash.
0: This guy that you bought these pills off is the father of the constable who steals dope gives to his father to sell. It, it's been it's been long known that this has been going on for years. I said, now it's only a matter of time before uh, they come and get us.
1: So they had a key, they opened the door, and they walked in on you guys sleeping, and you woke up to a bunch of cops with guns.
0: Right. Woke up with two uh, guns in my faces.
1: That must have been terrifying, huh? Yeah. Listen, when you got a constable is out here hooking and crooking people and making more arrests than the state police and the local DEA. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like giving the fox the keys to the chicken house.
0: This Wally guy is notorious for planting drugs, stealing shit. Everybody knows it. It just we just can't we just can't nail him. He said, but you know what? You might, you just might be the difference. You're not a bad man. You're
1: not a bad man. I'm not a bad woman. You're not a bad man. You're not a bad man. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast comes season two of Criminal Conduct. The new season starts on April 16th. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm not a bad woman. Body,
0: the body from me. Sources for this episode include an October 8, 1953 Associated Press article in the Baltimore Sun, an Associated Press article in the Daily Press, Newport News, Virginia, dated October 8, 1953, an Associated Press article in the Times, Shreveport, Louisiana, dated October 7, 1953 an Associated Press article in the Baltimore Sun dated October 8, 1953, an Associated Press article in the Spokane Chronicle dated October 8, 1953, an Associated Press article in the Baltimore Sun dated October 8, 1953, an October 7, 1953 Associated Press article in the Times, Shreveport, Louisiana. A 2021 post on the City of Mission Hills website at missionhillsks.gov. Posts on the Greenlees Family website dated 1995, posted by Elias Charles Disney and Daniel H. Disney at GreenleaseFamily.com. A post on the FBI's official website dated 2020 at fbi.gov. An October 8, 1953 article in the Times, Shreveport, Louisiana, by James B. Galloway. A book titled Zero at the Bone by John Hydenry, An article in the Kansas City Times dated November 17th, 1953 by Bill Moore. An article in the Kansas City Times dated November 17th, 1953 by Ray Morgan. An article in Time Magazine dated October nineteen 1934 at content.time.com. An October 8th, 1953 article in the St. Joseph News Press. A Kansas City Star article dated July 10, 2014. An article by Tim O'Neill in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch dated September 28, 2020. An article by Harold M. Slater in the St. Joseph Gazette dated November 17, 1953. A United Press article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch dated November 17, 1953. Seeking the truth never gets old.